North Korea is the impossible state. It's a place that stumped leaders and policymakers for more than three decades. It has a complex history, and it has become the United States' top national security priority. Each week on this show, we'll talk with the people who know the most about North Korea. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Impossible State, CSIS podcast. My name is Victor Cha, Senior Vice President for Asia and Korea Chair at CSIS, professor at Georgetown University. This is our second show of 2024, and today we're going to be discussing a recent paper that we here at CSIS published on the question of North Korea in 2024, what should we be expecting? I'm joined on today's podcast by... Uh, someone else from CSIS, Dr. Ellen Kim, who is Senior Fellow and Deputy Director of the Korea Chair, uh, someone who used to be at CSIS for many years uh, and then went off and she went and got her PhD. Why she would do that, I just don't know. But she went and got her PhD uh, and has come back to CSIS uh, as a Senior Fellow and, and as Deputy Director and has been integrally involved in all the work of the Korea Chair. So um, Ellen and I are going to discuss this new paper. We hope that'll be of interest to our viewers and to our listeners. Uh, so why don't we get started? So uh, Ellen, let me just turn it over to you. Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me today. I am very glad to be back in the impossible state. Uh, for our listeners, let's discuss the new, new report that CS has published this week, Slow Boil, What to Expect from North Korea in 2024. So Dr. Chow, what is the key takeaway from this report? So I think the, the main takeaway from the report is that we should expect 2024 to be a rocky year in terms of uh, North Korean actions, North Korean provocations, testing, these sorts of things. There are a bunch of indicators that lead us to believe uh, that uh, uh, North Korea is not going to be quiet in mm. 2024. Mm. So let's talk about some graphs in the report. Um, uh, maybe we can start with the figure one in the report, uh, which you can see on the screen. Can you tell us about what this is showing us? Yeah, sure. So it's pretty self-evident. You know, this is about North Korean provocations under the past four administrations. Um, so what we did was we simply took the annual average number of provocations in a year during uh, the George W. Bush administration, you see here, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and the Biden administration. We took the average annual number, of course, because um, you know Trump only served four years, Obama served eight, Bush served eight, Biden served four. But just this very simple uh, longitudinal analysis, you can see that there has been a steady rise in the annual average number of North Korean provocations under each of these administrations. So under George W. Bush, very clearly here was only 3.5. You know, that seems very low to me. I remember I was in that administration and I felt like North Koreans were doing provocations every other week. Mm. Uh, um, but it was it was on average only 3.5. Uh, during the eight years of Obama, this was during the period of strategic patience. North Korea was very active. During the Trump administration, of course, they were also quite active. Uh, almost the, I'm sure President Trump would not like to know that 
the average annual provocations by North Korea were the similar were similar, mm -hmm. basically similar as they were during eight years of strategic patience when he was doing all this summit diplomacy. <laughs> Nevertheless, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of parity there. But of course, the big change is here, right? That right. we see, you know, under um, uh, three and a half years, well, almost three and a half years of the Biden administration, the number has increased dramatically. Yes, indeed, very dramatical increase there. Um, so let's move on to the second graph then. Um, uh, oh, can we have the figure yeah, that's two? Me. I'll oh, do yeah. It. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, you know, we think of the first year of Trump year um, as the fire and fury with the North Korea's significant provocation. But what is this graph showing here? It seems like there's a huge you know, increase in, you know, as you said, there's a number of, a lot of number of missile tests under Biden administration. Yeah. Yeah. So again, the, 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 so this is a, this breaks down sort of year, uh, year by year, the uh, North Korean provocations during the Trump administration and the Biden administration. And for those of our viewers and listeners who've been, you know, following this closely, this may not seem like a surprise to you, but it's still interesting to look at. Some of you may remember in the first year of the Trump administration in 2017, um, this was the so-called year of fire and fury, where it seemed as though North Korea was doing missile tests uh, every other every other week, uh, and they were and and Kim Jong Un and Donald Trump were locked in sort of a rhetorical battle between the two of them, calling each other names like I think Rocket Man, Rocket Man, and mm. Dotard or something. It was senile or whatever it was. And so I remember this very well. There were, you know, there were about 20, right? You had a nuclear test, you had 17 missile tests, and you had other provocations. Uh, and then, of course, the summitry started in 2018 and 2019. And this is, to me, always still a very interesting period. I think in all of our analysis of this, this is the only year, 2018, in which there is nothing. Mm. There are no, there are no, there's no provocations. And of course, that was during the period of the summit di diplomacy where Kim Jong-un had this self-imposed testing moratorium. Um, in 2019, we start to see the situation changing as the summitry fails uh, to produce anything, and North Korea does a lot of testing. I think <clears throat> many of these, if I remember correctly, in 2019 were shorter-range ballistic missile tests because every time they did one, Trump would say, that's not a violation mm -hmm. of my agreement with Kim Jong-un because they're not long-range mm -hmm. missile tests, which then raised decoupling concerns. Mm -hmm. For the for Japan and Korea, if we go to the Biden administration, some of you remember um, when the Biden administration started in 2021, North Korea was relatively speaking quiet. Uh, we didn't see a lot of activity by North Korea in 2021. But where we really see it to start to emerge is from the second year of the Biden administration, where there's this massive jump, right? There's this massive jump. And this continues in 2022, mm -hmm. 2023. And like I said, we expect it's going to be pretty bad in 2024. All in total, there are, this is 91. This even needs to be updated now. So there's, mm -hmm. there's more than 91 provocations during the Biden presidency. Um, compared with uh, the 40s um, uh, during the during the Trump administration. So this raises a question of why we have we are seeing this dramatic increase in testing and provocations. Yeah, so it's a good question. You know, I think there are a couple of possible reasons uh, that we talk about in the report. Uh, one of them is that North Korea is working very hard to improve and perfect new classes of weapons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, moving from stationary missiles to uh, mobile launch missiles. 
moving from liquid propellant missiles to solid propellant missiles, uh, trying to develop longer range missiles, trying to develop missiles that have hypersonic warheads. Mm -hmm. You know, this is all part of a sort of scientific developmental testing pattern that we see from North Korea that has clearly accelerated. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think um, that's certainly one of the reasons. Uh, But that's not the only reason. as North Korea is testing more and more capabilities to improve their weapon systems, they are also exercising, I think, um, through, uh, uh, through uh, missile demonstrations that are designed to sort of combine short-range ballistic missile exercises with longer-range ballistic missile exercises with bomber activities. So one piece of this, uh, this increased uh, activity has to do with uh, scientific developmental testing. Another piece of it has to do with operational exercising. Mm-hmm. Just like the United States and the ROK mm-hmm. do military exercises, this is North Korea's doing missile exercising. And I think that's another reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a third reason that we talk about in the paper uh, that we cannot discount is also uh, the absence of diplomacy, mm-hmm. right? The absence of diplomacy, we, you know, we have another longitudinal study where we've looked at, going back to the Clinton administration, where we've looked at patterns of North Korean uh, behavior when it comes to missile demonstrations, provocations, testing. Um, and one of the patterns that's very clear is when the United States is not in dialogue with North Korea, uh, the level of activity by North Korea in this area goes up. Mm. Uh, and that when we are in dialogue with them, it goes down. Whether we're talking about uh, negotiations taking place during the agreed framework in 1994, during the six-party talks in 2005 to 2007, during the Bush administration, um, during the Leap Day deal under the Obama administration, although that was curtailed and ended by a North North Korean uh, rocket launch, or during summit diplomacy under Trump uh, with Singapore, Hanoi, Panmunjom. Generally, when we're talking with the North Koreans, the level of testing goes down. We're not talking with the North Koreans now, and so that's another possible reason that the the testing um, has increased. We, you know, it um, these studies. If your uh, listeners are interested, you can find them on the CSI's Korea Chair website. One of the interesting things that we found, in addition to that, was there actually wasn't a relationship between inter-Korean dialogue and North Korean. Uh, uh, provocations or the absence of North Korean provocations. In fact, um, while there was a pattern with the United States in periods of inter-Korean dialogue, uh, you could very well see provocations or you might not see provocations. So we mm-hmm. could not discern mm-hmm. a similar pattern when it came to inter-Korean dialogue. Mm-hmm. It was largely uh, negotiations that involved the United States, whether it was in a bilateral format or whether it was in a multilateral format. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have one more um, figure that we'd like to go over. Um, can you have a, a graph? Next slide. Yeah. Okay. This one, right? Yeah. What mm-hmm. do we see here then? Um, so uh, this is a this is a graphic that looks at uh, North Korean provocations during major U.S. election years. So um, for our viewers, what we did was we looked at sort of made. Uh, we define major U.S. elections as basically midterm elections or U.S. presidential elections. Mm-hmm. And again, a very simple calculation. Like we're not, you know, we're not computer science majors here at Korea Chair, CSIS. We're political scientists. 
Um, uh, and so we counted the, you know, we basically counted the number of provocations that took place during election years um, under Kim Jong-un and under Kim Jong-il. Um, and so we tallied, we looked at this number, we, we tallied them all up, and again, we took the average. And so under mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un, the average number of provocations in a major U.S. election year was about four. If we go to, if we look at Kim Jong-il, if we look at Kim Jong-un, it's mm -hmm. a shorter period of time, of course. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we look at the major elections again in 2012, 14, 16, 18, 20, and 22. And here we see there is a, a, a similar pattern where there's uh, a lot of provocations taking place. But you can see the numbers are getting much larger. Uh, again, 2018 mm -hmm. is the outlier year, right, because mm -hmm. of the Singapore summit. Um, mm -hmm. But these numbers start getting much, much larger. So again, the differences in the average uh, under Kim Jong-un has, has gone up. I mean, we have a smaller sample size, but mm. uh, they, they've gone up. So now there's almost 20 that we see during during a U.S. election year, during a U.S. election year. So um, is this increase uh, largely because of the, uh, you know, continuation of the strategic patience of the Obama administration and Biden administration, or what is your thoughts on it? Um you know, I think I think it's hard to say. I mean, I think what this I think what this particular graph suggests is that in 2024, because it is a U.S. election year, uh, we will see more uh, North Korean provocations. Um, mm -hmm. Again, this is a pattern. It's pretty evident, uh, and and this is you know everybody who's been watching. This is a big election year in the United States. It's also an election year in Korea. Um, and so we expect to see more of these uh, more of these provocations. I think um, what also makes this uh, makes us concerned about 2024 is that in addition to it being a U.S. election year, and in addition to the absence of diplomacy making North Korea more inclined to be active in this regard, mm. the third factor is um, U.S. ROK military exercises. Yeah. Um, Regularly scheduled exercises. Uh, there, there's usually a major military maneuver exercise that takes place in February or March, mm -hmm. um, and um, there's no suggestion that this won't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, our work shows that when there are major military exercises and they are preceded by the absence of any sort of diplomacy, mm -hmm. North Korea reacts very strongly to those exercises. And that's kind of the situation that we're in right now. So in addition to it being an election year, in addition to the fact that there's no diplomacy taking place, and uh, we have these exercises coming up, uh, which North Korea is likely to respond to. In the past, when we have been in dialogue with North Korea and we've exercised, they actually did not respond as severely. In some mm -hmm. cases, it was small token response. Mm -hmm. Some cases, not at all. Mm -hmm. um, so you know this is this is uh, this I think is another concern. Um, in terms of strategic patience, um, you know again there there are um, there was lots of criticism of the Obama administration that strategic patience was one of the reasons North Korea became so belligerent. Mm. Um, but as we saw in I think it was the second graph, actually if we look at the average. Uh, there were just as many provocations during Trump as yeah. there was, was during Biden. So I don't mm. know if I'd blame strategic patience mm. so so much for that. Mm. Um, I think some of these other factors we talked about uh, are are a better explainer of what mm. we're seeing. So, so then, what can the U.S. administration do now? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly not an easy situation. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> uh, I mean, it's bad news, but I think um, one of the messages of this work is that we should expect mm -hmm. North Korean provocations. And it would be a very tall order for the Biden administration to say their goal in 2024 is to try to stop these uh, provocations, testing, demonstrations, exercising, whatever you want to call them. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's very difficult to do, and it would be setting the policy up for failure mm. uh, because there are many factors that are leading them in this direction. It certainly means that there should be an effort, um, and I'm not saying that there hasn't been, mm. but there should continue to be an effort to try to pursue diplomacy. Mm. Um, I think uh, um, Bob Gallucci didn't call it strategic patience in a recent piece he wrote. He called it patient engagement. Mm. Um, that is certainly something that's necessary for all the reasons that we've talked about, because it could have, it could help to sort of reduce this level of mm. testing, provocations, exercising, however you want to describe it. I feel like I have to use all three words because if I say testing, I'll get an email from somebody saying you, they're not tests, they're exercising, right? <laughs> you know, so I feel like you have to say all all three all three words um, now. Um, um, you know, so I think that's that's certainly uh, something that should be continued. And I say, like I say, I don't think it's the Biden administration's fault. I mean, they have been trying, as you know, as many of us know, the administration has been trying in many different ways to try to open channels of dialogue with North Korea. And they're just not answering uh, at this point. It could change, but they're not answering um, at this point. The other thing I think is you know, because we know these provocations are coming, prov provocations, testing, exercising, we know that it's coming, we should pre be prepared to make lemonade out of the lemon, mm. uh, which is to use this as a platform for accelerating, improving, augmenting uh, U.S. rock, U.S. rock Japan exercising, mm. U.S. rock Japan Australia exercising. Um, we should use this as a platform to try to continue that apace or, or accelerate the pace or come up with new ideas for exercising. And then, you know, to try to use these expected provocations as a platform for engaging China more on this issue. Mm. You know, China has not been very helpful on this issue. Mm. Uh, um, um, uh, but, but uh, you, you know, I think we have to keep trying. We have to use mm. this as an opportunity to try to get China to help more. You know, it's been reported that, you know, China has played a role in getting North Korea not to do the seventh nuclear test. So mm -hmm. if they still have influence on North Korea, I think um, uh, th this activity will provide an opportunity to try to work with the Chinese to have some impact on the way um, North Korea is behaving. And even further along, uh, if, if um, we can use these provocations as a way to try to get other actors uh, to, um, to try to impede the growing cooperation that's taking place between DPRK and Russia in terms of ammunition in Ukraine uh, and who knows what the Russians are providing the North Koreans in terms of sensitive uh, military technology. So, I, you know, again, you know, in government, it's all about, and especially on North Korea policy, it's all about making lemonade out of the lemon. Mm -hmm. And so I think these are some of the things that, that we can pursue. Mm. I have one final question. Um, as you know, the North Korean leader has been making a series of very hostile remarks towards South Korea. He calls South Korea as a number one enemy. He 
declared the unification is not possible. And he also ordered the dismantlement of the uh, inter-Korean institutions. So what, what is Nor- uh, Kim Jong-un is doing here? Um, yeah, I, I, a lot of people have been asking that question lately. And, you know, of course, we don't know clearly what the answer is. But it seems to me that this is, this is proactive decoupling uh, mm. taking place on the Korean Peninsula. I think, you know, the combination of the change in, the, in South Korea from the Moon government to the Yoon government, you know, from a progressive to, to a conservative government, uh, in combination with heightened USROK alliance activity, Camp David, um, as well as um, both Korea's involvement in the war in Ukraine, mm. Uh, I think this has sort of led to really, you know, very little opportunities for inter-Korean dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I think what Kim Jong-un is doing is just formalizing something that we knew was happening anyway. Mm-hmm. This isn't the first time, as you know, where North Korea has done things like this. They blew up the inter-Korean mm-hmm. uh, family reunion, mm-hmm. whatever it was, building, building built by the South Koreans on yeah. the North Korean side. They yeah. literally blew the blew thing up. Yeah. So, um, I mean, relative to that, um, sort of um, the dismantling these dialogue channels that were not mm. active at all, mm. that pales in comparison to like physically blowing up the facility. Yeah. So so I think, you know, it, it is a mm. political statement for sure about decoupling. Mm. Uh, but I, And I think it's sort of been um, um, it, it informed by all of these things that have been happening both on the Korean Peninsula as well as in, in terms of the war in Europe. Mm. Well, this is very uh, interesting and insightful discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your report and ex- uh, sharing your insight. Yeah, no, it was a, it was a lot of fun to do. Um, mm-hmm. So this was uh, the the title of the report is "Slow Boil: What to Expect from the DPRK in 2024." Of course, Ellen, you helped with it. Andy mm-hmm. Lim, mm-hmm. our, our um, um, associate fellow, also helped with it. And um, it's not good news uh, about North Korea, but it's, I think, important news for people to understand. Yeah, certainly, for sure. Great. So uh, thanks again for joining us for another episode of The Impossible State. Uh, we hope that you'll all be uh, safe and stay warm in the days ahead, and we look forward to seeing you on the next episode. If you have a question for one of our experts about The Impossible State, email us at impossiblestate at csis.org. If you want to dive deeper into the issues surrounding North Korea, check out Beyond Parallel. That's our micro website that's dedicated to bringing a better understanding of the Korean peninsula. You can find it at beyondparallel.csis.org. And don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's so more listeners can find us. It's very helpful. We're now also streaming on Spotify, so you can find us there too, where you find all your music. How cool is that? And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Impossible State.